Before we begin, I'd like to recommend the Hunter Conservationist podcast. It's a show that offers nuanced discussions about wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. This podcast shares similar themes. So if you enjoy my show, I'm confident you'll also appreciate the Hunter Conservationist podcast. You can find it on the same platform you're currently using for listening. In addition, you can visit thehunterconservationist.com or simply click on the link in the show notes. You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is episode 160. I wanted to make an episode about SCI, Safari Club International, for quite a while. Uh, there are many reasons for that. One of them being that this organization really fascinates me. And another one is to introduce Safari Club International to my European listeners. Um, some of you might not know what this organization is about, or maybe just heard about them, or maybe you heard about SCI and you know them well, but just curious where they stand at the moment uh, in terms of uh, various issues. Uh, and you are listening to this episode right now. We are going to talk about really three main issues that are currently playing out for hunters uh, across the world. And the first one is social perception of hunting or social acceptance of hunting or sometimes, like I like to say, social license to hunt. And not long ago, uh, we talked about uh, this very issue with David Scallon from FACE, which is European Organization for Hunting and Conservation. And so today we are going to hear American perspective. Um, second big item is um, repeated attempts to ban trophy imports. And when I say trophy imports, that mainly means animals living in Africa, African animals. Um, we heard about the trophy import ban attempt in the UK. Uh, they, they are happening essentially across the world. And since uh, SCI has safari and international in its name, it is particularly interesting to hear their take on this. And finally, the third big item, again relevant to hunters across the world, is use of lead in hunting ammunition or use of lead ammunition. Um, we are in the process across the world of phasing out lead ammunition and there are many facets to it and many approaches of how to do it or how not to do it. And I was also very curious to hear how that situation looks like across the pond in the US of A. And to discuss those three topics, there is just no better person than our guest today, Ben Cassidy, who is Executive Vice President for International Government and Public Affairs. So perfect person, perfect discussion about a cross-section of hunting and politics and social issues, which are largely politics. Anyway, and now I have nothing else to say, just enjoy the episode. 
Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Tommy, pleasure to be had. Great to see you. How are we doing? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. It's, it's been a while uh, since we met in Paris, and now here we are doing podcasts. I love it. I didn't have yeah. to come all the way back for you. It's good. Yeah. SCI, I was looking forward to have a podcast like specifically about SCI for, for a long time. And, you know, I had some people from SCI involved in the chapters. But here you are, you know, executive vice president for international government and public affairs. You, go, you will elaborate in a second what that means. But because majority of our listeners are located in Europe, and some of them might not even know what SCI is, Safari Club International. Would you mind to give us like a quick overview of the history, where SCI came from, and what it does at the moment? And then you can make a, like a quick segue and also tell you what is your role sure. uh, as executive vice president uh, in SCI. Yeah, happy to do so. And thanks so much, Tommy, for having the opportunity to talk about SCI. I've um, been spending a little bit more time in Europe recently. Uh, with a lot of the activity that, that's been going on. But yeah, Safari Club International, we're going into what our 52nd year of existence. So we were founded in the 70s in Los Angeles, California. A group of like-minded uh, hunters like to travel, like to hunt. So started off really as a club and it's grown into something much bigger, you know, I think as it's become necessitated. Really international hunting, conservation, advocacy organization, member-driven, built off of chapters that are throughout the, the world mostly based in, in the U.S. with a good, strong presence in Canada, uh, Europe, you know, Australia, New Zealand. We celebrated our 50th um, in Nevada. We'd always have like this big hunter's gala every year. It's really our, our, our centerpiece to the year, kind of kicks things off. It's always at the beginning of the new year. Had it in Nevada for 50 years, recently moved it to, to Nashville, Tennessee. But that's really, you know, the one time of the year where we have everybody come in that's a part of the organization, you know, whether it's the members, the folks that volunteer, our exhibitors, you know, elected officials, or say, you know, wildlife management authorities from different range countries kind of all come together and kind of create that that soup, that gumbo that is, you know, Safari Club International. Um I have the great privilege in my job of overseeing our office in Washington, D.C., which is really, you know, our, our, our global headquarters um, for everything we do on advocacy, communications, and marketing. Uh, you know, my background has always been in the government affairs space. Um, I was a volunteer for SCI. I was a, I was a paying member, um, you know, early on. I worked in government where SCI would would lobby me, you know, and tell me how we had to do more for hunters. And I agreed. <laughs> uh, and then I was fortunate enough to see a position open up and come out and started actually getting paid by them for, <laughs> for what I do. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have a really good fortune of overseeing an incredible team. Um, very varied. You know, we have lobbyists, we have lawyers, we have comm specialists, really full suite. Um, that focuses in on, you know, our mission, which is, you know, to be first for hunters, to defend the freedom to hunt and conservation worldwide. Uh, I think from our vantage point on that international scale, you really see a lot of the things that go on that challenge or maybe threaten hunting or seem to be really interconnected. Um, I always say you see one bad idea it travels a lot faster than the good idea. Something that's happening in Brussels that's of concern doesn't take very long to be a problem in California and then a problem in Washington, D.C., so I think it's really 
requires, you know, from the hunting side, having, you know, kind of that sentinel that's able to, to always watch what's happening and, and be able to, to move and defend and put our voice in, in, in front of places. Um, when I, when I look at, at, uh, SCI and, uh, activity online and other things that this is, this is the impression I'm getting is like a lot of like uh, lawyers, like you said, they policy people who are, you know, like you're very, very serious about, um, what you're doing from, from that perspective. And, you know, so I, I just want to, um, go into the first, like a main item I want to discuss with you, which is, uh, social attitude to hunting and social license to hunt and everything that's going on. And, I start with a little bit of story. Like a few years ago, I watched on YouTube like a like a 30 second spot that the SCI had called Trigger. Join SCI and Trigger anti hunting extremists for free now. And I was laughing. My you know I was I was just saying like oh man I wish Face, which is European Federation for Hunting and Conservation for listeners, I wish Face was more like SCI and like and and obviously you know fast forward number of years and it is be you know it's clear to me and for all those hunting organizations both local and international that it's 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 not the right way to communicate about hunting because as a hunters we are in minority and you know if you're confrontational and want to trigger anti-hunter and and you're in the minority that usually doesn't end up well for the minority and i see this being recognized and very positive move is going on across many organizations face is hiring persons specifically for the job of communicating with non-hunting uh cic is rebranding and changing for like rewild re whatever restore i would like to hear from you how that situation looked like in sci how sci came to the um you know realization that there is a need for some change and how that change what that changes how it is being implemented no, that's a that's a great question, great point. I mean, coming into the job at SCI, right? I mentioned that I've always been in government affairs, you know, and 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 what brings me to SCI and the role I have is I love politics and I love hunting, right? I've never found anything other than like hunting where I can go into any single room and be able to just with blind faith just say it is a good thing and it's doing incredible things for the planet. And everybody should go out there and say, thank you to a hunter. Thank you to an angler, right? That's what brought me to it. And being in politics, you can become very pessimistic, right? You just see how the sausage is made. It's not always clean. It's not a good thing, right? But what I've seen from, from our vantage point at SCI is with hunting, we have the facts. Now, sometimes our arguments can come across to someone that has no idea what hunting is as being a paradox being contradictory, how do you kill something to save something? When you provide the facts, and if you provide testimony from folks that are directly affected by it, hand them over, I think 95%, 99% of the time, you change minds on it, right? And we've seen it time and again, where there's been discussions around, say, shutting down trophy bans. And it's happening amongst people that have never been to the countries that they're talking about shutting them down from. And we've been able to see, like, you know, somebody from that actual country, say it's Zimbabwe, go and present in front of, you know, th these elected bodies and talk about it, change their minds, have them scrap it. So I just think it's it's incredible to see and the power that we have within our community of having the facts, being able to present them, and people are just people. They're able to to, to sort it out from there and make their minds up. Uh, 
So I think that, that that's a key piece. And with SCI, you know, what I pride ourselves on is having is being very thorough in reporting factual news, being very thorough on, on understanding what the situation is, translating it to mass audience. Then they're able to be educated on it and then being able to point folks on who to be able to tell the, the facts to. So it's education and activation. I don't think that you really had to, you know, play games with it in a cynical sort of way to be able to get your message across when we already have the high ground, right? And I think sometimes as like a hunting community, we can be blind to or forget about it. But at the end of the day, we're the ones that are doing the right thing. We don't have to go low to stay high, right? What is your view on the opinion that, you know, we have those facts and we have all the data we wanted for for years? Yep. And it, it is not exactly that we as the hunters or hunting communities winning that battle for, you know, hearts and souls of the non-hunters, right? And one of the views is like, what, what we're missing is the emotional message. Yep. And, and you, you, I'm sure you heard that, that, you know, all the, you know, whether this is like anti-hunting uh, movement or it, it is, the message is highly emotional and, and emotions are always winning over facts. So, it, it, and, and, and that's why this is, this like over years, we've probably been over-reliant on, on facts. So I'm just wondering, like, how does it look like? Do you disagree with that? Or do you, is there is like an aspect of it, uh, you know, like messaging for non-hunting people who are, you know, like they're not going to read the paper. They're not going to analyze, you know, table of the data. It's like, oh, this animal, right? It has uh, eyelashes and they're killing, uh, you know, and that's an emotional message that is traveling, like I said, travels like wildfire. Yep. You can say it in a quick soundbite. It's a lot easier than explaining. You're explaining, you're losing like those arguments. Yes. Uh, which makes it, yeah, I mean, it makes the, the the playing field much more difficult. And I think it does put the onus on hunters uh, to be able to get our message out beyond, you know, our own bubble. Um, like I said, it, it, it's hard to distill it into emotions. And I think that that's playing cheap with like, what we actually hold um, in in facts, and I don't know why we walk away from the facts to try to play an emotional game. Uh, I think that the other side can be pretty good at mischaracterizing hunters, making us feel like we're you know soulless and heartless. I mean, I, that can be fed into things where we're, we're able to show that a little bit more more clearly. But I would hate to try to say sell ourselves short and cheap in our own messages. Um, to play it with just pure emotion, you know, just because it's working for the other side. It's disingenuous. I wouldn't be comfortable with it. Um, yeah, I get it your point. It, very, it, may, it makes for a very complicated dialogue. I think it goes across a number of different societal issues too, where you just see emotion um, winning winning the day against sound reason. And I don't know if it's if it's a new thing. It's obviously even supercharged with the way you know information flies around. Uh, but again, it's like, maybe it's part of why I get such a kick out of like actually holding that Trump card on the facts. Right. And it takes a little bit more work, but it's incredible just to see it when you have someone that's just like basically making their mind up. They have all the, the keys to the city. They can make the decisions and they're, and, and they're all for ending hunting because it's just abhorrent. It's horrible. And they say it like that until they see somebody that comes in and it's a mom from say, you know, Zambia. Um, explaining how this is, you know, essential to their livelihood, to their safety, and just seeing them turn white and their jaw drop and walking them off of that. I mean, 
one heart at a time, right? It's not happening over a post that goes on to Instagram and gets your billion hearts on it. But but I guess that's that's where people like you comes to play, where you actually, with your political background and like you say, you're enjoying politics, you have an in. You know where you can go and present the facts. Yep. Because then again, this is, like you said, this is not that we're going to post the facts on social media and everybody goes like, oh, I guess hunting is good. And and you're so what I understand that you go directly to policymakers whose job is actually to look at the data rather than being emotional. Well, so it's it's me going or one of the folks on our team, but don't get me wrong, like the doors that we walk into open and the strength of our voice are there because of our membership, right? Like nobody just says I want to have a meeting with Ben Cassidy, right? They say they want to meet with Safari Club International. That's because of our, our our members. And one thing that, you know, we've always focused on is equipping our members with with, with the facts, having them be able to present them too. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, it's different from, you know, country to country, obviously, but like with the, the American system, you know, members of Congress have to take in those comments that come in. They've got to consider them. You'll get a response. You know, it'll they'll, they'll weigh things off of it. Um, so that that's a big, a big deal to have our membership light up, directly contact, speak directly to, to their members. I mean, you see it too, I guess, you know, in Europe, we talk about face, like that incredible petition that they did, right? With the signatures on it. I mean, that's foreign to me. Obviously it's foreign to me, it's, it's in Europe, but it's foreign to me in the concept that petitions in Brussels, you know, there's an entire, uh, there's an entire, pe- there, there, there's petty, right? It, it's an entire commission basically that's dedicated to receiving petitions and considering them and having them apply into actual policy making like that doesn't exist i mean we have change.org but there's nobody in like government that takes those and says we have to act on this we've heard from this many people uh i mean there's there's power in that sort of outreach but but you know i mean but if if it's just like i mean down to facts like i mean like pure emotion i mean you look at where all the wildlife say in africa is thriving it's where it's being hunted right i mean and then you put that with the image of, you know, a, an affected family and, you know, that'll turn some hearts. But the way that they do it on the other side where it just doesn't, it purposely doesn't tell the story. I mean, that's just, it's not good. That's just that of course. abusing the system. Yeah. Ben, tell me, um, when you're, when I listen to even to your podcast, uh, or, or um, by the way, First for Hunters is your podcast, right? SCI. Yeah, thanks. Um, but also, when I when I listen to communication that's going in, it it feels like this is like a like a besieged city. Like you know, access is gonna be taken away, and the hunting rights gonna be taken away, and all these things. And where I'm sitting, you know, it, to me, and I'm sure to many European listeners, like you know, like America is this like a best place to hunt ever because there's many hunters there's a huge like a middle class of hunters there's a lot of them access to guns is just frictionless compared to europe or ireland like like where i am there's like no issue at all and then so we have this picture of like you know you have a public lands where you can go and hunt and you have all those animals and access to guns and many hunters all those things and then you listen to messages and it's it's feels like almost it's just on the brink of being shut down. So I just want you to lay it out to us, you know, how how that situation looks like in the United States, really, 
you know, what is the social acceptance of hunting? Yeah. And and how big are those threats uh, to hunting? All right. This is a good one to unpack. Um, I like the way you, you tee it up, too, because we do have a deep, rich tradition, say, in the United States for hunting, right? I think that, you know, when I've been over in Europe and we talk about, like, say, social acceptance, a lot of the times people look to the numbers that we have for our social acceptance in the United States and say, you know, that's kind of a, a gold standard. You know, other countries would say, how do we get to that, you know, 82%? I don't know what the exact number is. But it's very high, like approval rating on hunting. Um, I would say that so society, social acceptance, social license, every all of that is constantly dynamic. We've talked about how, you know, discourse has changed. Everything's dynamic. I would say that we see it across the globe. It can be in Ireland. It can be United States with urbanization, people moving away from countryside where there's a disconnect from what that heritage is. It's kind of in that disconnect. History can be lost where people forget about why that had some sort of importance, why it mattered to defend it. Uh, and I think as we've just seen in across the, the spectrum of issues, you just see everything become politicized and up for grabs. There's just this ongoing, like, say, like, culture war. And for better or for worse, like, something like conservation has gotten kind of sucked into that. I would say, like, from what I've experienced in the hunting community, plus what I've experienced with just being in politics, is I have a very strong disdain for complacency and thinking that because today was good, tomorrow's going to be even better. I don't think that that is actually the case. I'm not, I don't consider myself like pessimist or, or I'm very, like we hang out, Tommy, very optimistic on things, but I also am very mindful of not accepting status quo um, and calling out, you know, when you see something that doesn't seem right. So you mentioned like access, right? I mean, from the United States, access has been taken for granted and it's a given. You mentioned our public lands, right? I mean, hundreds of millions of acres that are open on the federal level alone, not even mentioning state, to, to access. You have the Bureau of Land Management where 99% of that's open to hunting. S similar number for, you know, open unless closed for our forest service. National parks are obviously all closed. Fish and wildlife refuges, I mean, that's part of their, uh, part of their doctrine, part of their establishment is that hunting is an activity that must be accepted for these unless there's a reason not to. Uh, so you've got all that access that's out there. But what we've seen like from like this administration, and it's become a political football, it was even before this administration, is just threats on that access. And then the more you talk with folks, you know, within our membership, the more you realize that access is more than just like physically stepping foot somewhere to go hunting. So there's that piece, but then it's also economic. Can I afford it? Like the most commonly used ammunition out there, lead, right? You see that shut down, that throws the whole system out of place. And now what we've seen over the summer is a shutdown on education programs where we have really big archery programs in schools. We have hunter education in schools. Really a lot of the places where it's the the first introduction to, to the lifestyle and maybe will be the only introduction because as you've seen with access, without a mentor, where do a lot of people go, right? So you have a huge swath there. So there's just three legs on a stool where it's directly being affected and not just like this might happen, but it's like 
No, like our Department of Education just interpreted a bill that had to do with school safety to say that archery programs cannot be funded. That's bad news. Or like literally just seeing, you know, our Fish and Wildlife Service phase out lead, not having any of the science to point to, not having a state management authority who manages the land, it has, has the, the wildlife as their resource saying that it needs to be done happening. You have unelected bureaucrats shutting down millions of acres of hunting access in Alaska at a time, unelected, just a board of seven folks saying, we're going to shut it down, getting open, opening a comment period, having people say, you know, nine to one, don't do this, doesn't matter, shut it down. So just those three examples just makes it feel like, you know, maybe things aren't going to keep going status quo, right? And I'm proud of like the position that we're in where we're not going to be complacent and we'll call it out and we'll do something about it. Like on Department of Education, we help break the story. And then because we have a, we're, we're the one hunting group that, you know, is fully active across the board in courts. So we've filed notice of intent to sue the Department of Education that they need to properly implement that language, interpret it the way Congress intended to. And again, bipartisan. Democrat, Republican, the folks that wrote the bill, they've come out and said, this is not what we meant it to do, right? Then you still have an administration that says, nah, we still read it this way. And if you want it to change, Congress has, has to change the language. So we're going we're gonna to fight on it till they change the language, you know? So, I mean, I hate to be grim and dour on it, but I think it's just also a realistic approach. And it's the approach that has to be taken we want to preserve, conserve what's most important to us. You know, can you can you explain that the issue with the with the uh, archery program? So they were to that point they were funded, so they were like a uh, I, I don't know whether it's governmental or or federal. You'd be I, I don't know that, that these details in the U.S. But they were funded, and essentially that funding stream was shut down. Does it automatically mean that those programs are done? Or is it just that the alternative source of funding needs to be found for them? So as it would stand now, it's a little bit more complicated. So the schools could still have the programs, but given the way that education has interpreted it, they wouldn't run the program out of the risk of losing all of their funding over it, right? So it's education funds going in. It has a chilling effect. So until there's further clarity on how it affects, they just stop. And really, you have our school system is all starting like this week, next week, last week. Um, so now is when all the programs really start taking off. But you're having them across the board saying, we're not going to do it. The other thing is that th that's the threat to it as like, you know, a United Nations is you can go to a place that probably is like super pro hunting, like ruby red, like Mississippi. And they're going to be like, screw it. Like, we're just going to do the program and we'll find some other way to do it. But I get concerned about other places that are just as important for hunters where you're in, I mean, just naming places that have a more diverse population of like California, Maryland, Illinois, you know, New York. Yeah. New York, just, I was going to say that. These places will, will, will quickly fold up tents and that's just a total loss. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a mess. But it's good. Like we'll have, Congress has been out on recess out of, out of D.C., for all of August, they all come back in two weeks. We're going to have a lot of meetings fired up around that. And there's already legislation introduced to try to fix it. A lot of letters have gone from Congress over the summer to education. Haven't seen responses to them yet. But again, I've never, I haven't seen an issue that I can remember in like recent history 
least in the, in the U.S., that's gotten this much of the community's attention and conversation. Like every meeting that I've been to with other hunting organizations over the last month, it's you know one or two on the list of items that we have been discussing. It's just interesting. I mean, some people still take it as like they just misinterpreted it. You know, maybe they'll change their minds. Like it's like, well, we can't leave it up to that though, right? We're gonna lose a whole year of of, of kids. You know, it's not good. And, and, and go back to to um, social acceptance, right? Because you mentioned that we saw, and I I, I should have looked at it before we got on because I knew we would go to this because it's a great topic. Um, we, there's constant polling showing how accepted it is in the United States, and it's always been very high. But we've seen it slip in the most recent polling, and that was polling that was done during you know the. COVID pandemic, when everyone was saying hunting is more popular, we sold more hunting licenses and everything, but that social acceptance has dipped. Um, and normally you have something like, well, if you eat it, you know, then it's okay, right? Like, are you okay with hunting if the the meat is consumed? Then it's like through the roof, 92%, you know? But even that had like a, a bit of a slip on it. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's, obviously top of the agenda too with everyone talking and you saying, you know, trying to sort through what the issue is there and, and how to address it. You know, it's the, 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 the numbers aren't just a blip, you know, I mean, it, it, it'll be representative of, of millions of people having changed their minds. Oh, I wonder, I wonder why I, that's the first, that's the first thing I heard about that. Yeah. Um, Ben, listen, I, you already mentioned, like, I want to switch gears and go to another big item, uh, that I want to discuss with you, which is, uh, trophy hunting. We obviously shouldn't put the word trophy between before hunting, uh, but as we say, that's how it's packaged. Uh, so many trophy import bans. It's not the ban on trophy hunting. It's import. It's ban on imports. Um, a lot of being said on this subject also on this podcast, and you know, like sitting here in the in Europe. And obviously, the thing is still ongoing in the UK. There were some bans that were attempted. Some of them were passed in other European countries. Um, even in Poland, there was an attempt um, that was that was squashed. But uh, obviously, that's not the end of it. Um, but quite often, you know, what we hear is like, "Oh, sure, but you know, like UK is just like only like one percent or two percent of these hunters. Like, well, what does it matter?" Uh, and obviously we have we have the discussion like yeah but that sets the precedence but the america the united states it's really this is a really big one um and and you are representing safari club international and obviously in the united states those attempts on import uh, trophy import bans are also um ongoing as far as i'm concerned could you please lay it out to us you know how that situation looked like at the moment in the U.S. and what are the prognosis and whether this is like a, on the state level or on federal level, like, it, it, you know, like the whole picture in the United States as it comes to ban on import of trophies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, 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 it's nonstop attempts. Right. And like you kind of said, there's just those different tiers of it where it's, you know, at federal, at state, at courts, it seems like if there's a, a blockage at the federal level, then they move it to try to do it at the states. There doesn't work there. Try for the courts. Um, but we've prevailed in the courts, which has been nice. Um, what we've seen in the states, you know, the, the 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 last big attempt at it occurred in California um, back in was it 
2020 um, with the Iconic Species Act, and that was defeated. Um, they tried to put it through like a COVID emergency response bill. I don't know where that fits in there, but that's where they tried for it. Um, that was defeated. That was really one of the the first times that you know I was witness to seeing those local voices talk directly to legislators and probably like folks that were kind of a traditional. You know, a big piece that that kind of sidelined that and and put it out and hasn't come back in California was. African voices, leaders out there talking directly to the uh, California Black Caucus. So members of uh, their 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 assembly and Senate, you know, that are African American, hearing from from Africans on on what the issue was, and the folks that you know represent like really urban areas that had nothing to do with hunting, but they were just doing it purely off of the, like again like the emotion and the facts on it. Um, so that was pretty incredible to see that because there couldn't be a more difficult arena you know, to try to put anything up in um, than, than Sacramento. Uh, in Washington, D.C., ever since the whole, like, C- uh, Cecil the Lion, Cecil the Lion, there's always been a, a push, and it's come through legislation, which you call it this, the Cecil Act, and then it's also been attempted through appropriations, right? We have bills every year that go through uh, where Congress, the House specifically, has the authority to fund the whole of government. Uh and in those bills, there would be language that would, it's not always about what you can pay for, it's what you can't pay for. So there's always language that goes in saying Congress cannot use any funds to process permits into the United States from, you know, list the countries where all our favorite animals are. Um, it's a political football. You know, if you have, if you have Democrats, it's become partisan in this way. If there's Democrats running the, the House of Congress, They'll use their trickery to have it go through without any real, you know, roll call vote. Um, when you see Republicans, you normally don't see it go through. And then the Senate, you you work on that side and then they conference it. And that's where it's kind of played out. We've defeated it, you know, every time it's been introduced. It's not in the current House bill right now. Um, and the Cecil Act hasn't been introduced this year. So it's kind of like you get a little bit of pause in having to actually address you know like a moving kind of ticking bomb but that gives us the opportunity to to educate people in the absence of the immediate threat and lay the groundwork for before this becomes an issue again because you know it'll rear its head again i mean it is already all over the place you mentioned places like poland um so i mean a lot of what we try to do just as a resource is we we have a like really good connections and relationships with you know folks that are in africa from the time we spend over there and with folks in D.C. So a lot of it's just trying to connect them so they, you know, hear, hear the stories and have the understanding and have a resource to go to when a bill is presented. They're told facts by a colleague. They're able to bounce it off of, you know, what people are saying, you know, back on the ground. And you, do, do you think that that was the the key element of, you know, defeating defeating those bills or kind of like a addressing immediate danger that the actual people from Africa, local people talking directly to the other people who are um, responsible for policy. Would you say that that was the key? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a, it makes a huge difference. You know, we go back to the UK example and yeah, I just be blunt with Tommy. It's like a lot of these, you know, politicians, they look at um, making their voting decisions based on, is it going to, are they going to be reelected? Right. And I think that when you mentioned like, oh, only 2% of the people do it in the UK. 
well, that's how an, a politician sees it too, right? Like, why would I stick my neck out for something that nobody really, you know, is going to care about? And then from the UK side, the folks that want to ban it, you know, they'd even say it too. It's like, oh, yeah, well, it's only 2%. Well, yeah, but we want to be the shining example for the rest of the world so they can copy it, right? Um, but I think that you're able to actually throw some friction into it when you show that it is more than, you know, a free pass um, for your stump speeches on on election trails. When you do show that you will have devastating effects on conservation efforts in places that mean a lot to all of us and we want our kids to experience and their kids. Um, I think that you've got, you know, some good movement. I've, I've been amazed in in the UK, which I always just saw their press as being the 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 most difficult, right? I mean, you've got like campaigns of trophy hunting that are funded by like their major periodicals. I mean, they're not even hiding it, right? It's just like crazy. But I never seen until this recent bill this much pro hunting come into the fold and this many places where I've seen guest columns from, you know, different corners of of Africa or the scientific community and not just having a free pass on it. Um, I think that that points to a lot of people's effort towards trying to break through on the communication. But it's been pleasantly surprising because I think it's having an effect. I think that when you get to the House of Lords, you could see, you know, maybe I don't think it's ever going to be great coming out of there, but not as bad as it could be, you know, and that benefits everybody. And if it's all wildlife, you know, you you mentioned like a uh, you know like a pro hunting voices. I I you know I'm struggling with that because a lot of those scientists who are I just kind of seeing like a hunters like a co opted scientist. They say, hey, look at the scientists. They're saying you know those things, and when you hear what the scientists are saying, most of them say like, yeah, I would ban trophy hunting tomorrow if there was alternative, right? And then I'm listening to that and I'm saying like, man. These guys are not your friends. <laughs> Just listen what they're saying, like, and you know. So this is like sort of, oh, we're gonna defend hunting as long as there is a a conservation benefit and there is no alternative, no viable alternative for that. And I'm always thinking, like, what about hunting for hunting's sake? Like, do do we, you know? So I see this as a quite a, like a slippery slope jumping on the bandwagon. I, I understand this is required for now, but I mean like a long term, yep. those scientific voices are, some of them at least, are not exactly pro-hunting. They have their own, I don't want to say agenda, but they, they, they their own thing, right? The conservation, the preservation of species, which by the way is the same thing as hunters want. Yep. So I'm wondering like, is there any, you know, any way of, of, uh, kind of ex- developing this this uh, this narrative or developing this this fight, let's say, to accept hunting and accept trophies import based on the fact that you know we want to do it and it's not detrimental, because otherwise you you get in this in this mode when you constantly needs to explain yourself and find the reason like why am I doing this right? It's like and it then it translates like a regular folks that hunt deer. It's like, oh, I hunt deer because they're invasive species. And I hunt deer because, you know, they're doing agricultural damage, right? And between us, like, a, bullshit. You hunt because it's fun. You want meat, right? You, you, you don't. So I'm just curious, like, curious your opinion on that. I, I Yeah, um, I totally get it. I've noticed that, and maybe you've had the same experience. And if you haven't or your listeners haven't, like, just do it as your own social experiment. 
But the next time that somebody asks you at a cocktail party or wherever you are that's not hunting, they ask you, why do you hunt? You might have, because of how we talk about it, have that like pull on your sleeve to say, well, conservation and the benefit. Try just saying instead, just say, because I like it. And what I've noticed is when you say, because I like it, nobody can ever argue it. There's no response to it. They No, Tommy, you don't like it. It's like, no, 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 I do, right? No, you don't. Yes, I do. <laughs> like, there's just no arguing it. <laughs> but yeah, that, that too, I mean, I always point it out. It's just like, at what point can we just like not admit that it's like the best experiences that you'll ever have in your entire life and it's F-U-N, just fun, right? I guess this is the politics aspect comes into play here, right? Because like, oh, if it's like, you're killing it for fun. It's... Right, well that, again, when you do like your polling and all that, like when you say, do you hunt for the trophy? Then it's like, nobody supports it. Not in America, nowhere else, right? I mean, that doesn't tell the full story, obviously. But uh, yeah, I mean, if they were just to say fun, I mean, who knows how people bend that, right? Yeah, that's but that's that's interesting. I just want to get it out there. Uh, you know, not not not. Uh, I, I just think that a lot of hunters are too quick to label those scientists as pro hunting because they they're you know often anything but totally. Uh, <laughs> ben, listen. So now let's move to the to the another one. Uh, big again across the world. It seems like. These these threats to hunting are just like across the world, and and that is lead. I mean, lead in ammunition, bad on lead, non toxic ammunition, and obviously uh, this situation is ongoing in in the, in the EU. It is uh, it is also uh, ongoing in the US. I, I I listened to your excellent podcast with the folks from the non lead partnership, and. Oh boy, where to start with this? You know, like I feel like ultimately there there is a reason we don't have leaded petrol anymore, and there is a re reason we don't have lead in paint anymore, and there's a reason we don't have lead in cosmetics anymore. We still have it in ammunition, and I saw I saw there's a little bit maybe like a little criticism of SCA. I saw the um I, I think it was a tweet or something where it was like oh there's a there is a threats to traditional hunting methods and i was like oh i wonder what this time right and i'm listening to this and it's like oh because there's a better you know like a non-lead ammunition it's like oh man it's disingenuous it's hardly hun traditional hunting um and and from from your conversation that i listen to on your podcast it is almost like if like if we ask people to do that and explain they want to do that but as soon as this comes down from, you know, a government, they go, no, we are, we're not going to do this. Yep. And to me, it's like, oh, but like, can we just put everything aside? It is actually getting rid of lead from ammunition. It's probably a good thing. There's like, like I said, data. There's a lot of data that says that it's, it's, it's a toxin, right? So I'm just curious, like where SCI stands, again, kind of like the same question, different topic, where SCI stands on lead and ban on lead and how that situation looks like in the U.S. at the moment. Yeah, again, like, I mean, I have a big issue with, you know, shutting down, and I would call it traditional, you know, traditional ammo. It's a traditional ammunition. I mean, that is what has been used over, over generations in the United States to go out hunting, and to this day, it's still used, not with waterfowl. That's all restricted. Everyone was okay with that, and we moved off of lead. Uh, That's already restricted. Is it across it, the, it's an entire country? 
Yeah, because yeah, so uh, on all like migratory over wetlands, it's it's across the, the country. It's all oh okay. It's all steel. Okay. Um, so so no no lead shot for for birds in the U.S. No, even in Texas. Even in Texas, <laughs> okay. it's a fair question. Even in Texas, uh, yeah. So I mean, th- that's where it walked off, I and mean, that opens a lot of people's eyes too. It's like, oh, so they're trying to ban like you know. My, my my deer ammo and there's one round going off and it's in the earth. I mean, the one cool thing with the, the peregrine guys just pointing out, it's like they're not concerned about the lead in the earth. They're concerned about it in the in in the food chain. Right. I mean, and what they were doing there, I mean, I find it fascinating. You know, I'd met Chris Parrish there um, at an event and we were we were just hot and heavy on the issue on lead he's like, I'm with peregrine friend i was like oh you know that, that's a raptor this guy's gonna have an opinion on lead <laughs> you know i had no idea what he actually and that he started the non-lead partnership um but just hearing from him too it's just like i mean there's no doubting this guy's like um sportsman's credentials right i mean he's dropped the biggest elk i've seen him fish he's great at it uh we were using lead tackle by the way so <laughs> like i was like you know he's not disingenuous but just hearing his approach on it and, and, and where we fully agree on it is just like, don't come down with the mandates, you know? So, and Fish and Wildlife has said it too, you know, they got sued by the Center for Bi- Biological Diversity. They got asked to to just shut it down across the country and they threw that out. They said, you know, we'll do case by case, which I still have a concern with because the way they're doing it, but they even threw that out. The legislation that we support that's in response to what's going on at our Fish and Wildlife Service it's all about having this the science available provided then having sign off from state management authority at least having them th- them consulted i mean I, I don't think that's like too high of a bar to clear right uh the, the direct mandate down it's just not going to work it's just it's just in human nature at least like in the american ethos like they're not going to respond to mandates we've seen how it plays out in you know Big terms, you know, just with around COVID, just doesn't fly in the states. Is that the, is that not the matter of the uh, of the uh, you know availability of the ammunition? Like at least where where I sit, like in the UK and Ireland, I think that the biggest the biggest issue is with the availability with you know especially like a smaller calibers like a two two three. Yeah, you know, and this is like you 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 said that you listened to when I was talking to David Scallon from Face, right? And I said like like why we not get like a ammunition manufacturers and and talk to them and say like hey you know there is a need for that because i, I think there is no way around that that, that ban is coming it's it's it like it, whether it's going to be within a year or 10 years at some point in the future we will have no lead ammunition we will have other ammunition i'm i'm truly i truly believe that and i believe this is a good thing in general but why why not you know like i think that if you go to the to the shop and buy ammunition that performs as well as and I'm I'm I believe that modern non-lead ammunition performs as good as uh, and the price is similar like nobody would even notice right I was I, I read I guess, uh, giving that example of the non-lead petrol right when we were like oh the car's not going to run and the car's going to break down and the, and the motor automotive industry going to get bust and whatever we're like whatever 20 30 years like young people I said like why well, it's you right unleaded like they never you never knew any other petrol i think the same going to be with with uh, lead ammo 
wouldn't that be in the interest of hunters to kind of like a speed up this process and make it as frictionless as possible? I think that's why like folks like the Peregrine Fund are doing a great job in having those programs in place to educate folks and show them. I mean, knee-jerk reaction, I don't have like some sort of like, you know, affinity to any any sort of metal. I mean, not even like gold, I guess. Like, I'm not like, I'm team lead, you know? I just know it's never that way. But like the reality of it, like I don't work for federal ammunition. I got to tour their, their plant, like, what is like the vast majority of bullets that are coming out of federal are all made of lead. And who's their number one customer? Military. The U.S. government, right? I mean, it's the military. Like that's how our system's built. Their military's not making their own ammo. They get it from third party. They're contractors for them. They're going to change their entire assembly lines, you know, over a hunting ban. It's not going to happen. Really? Do you think? Do you, so do you think there is a real danger of actually shortage of ammunition? I mean, we've seen shortages before. If you were to ban lead and not have this infrastructure to do, you know, other metals, possibly. Um, but again, like like we were talking about, like, yeah, having an alternative that's as effective at getting the job done, great, bring it. But at the same cost, show them it to me. I just don't know like what other metals as cheap as lead. But I guess like the environmental aspects are need to be taken into account, or like even health. Right. You know, I mean, like, it's like, oh, how much lead do you consume when you shoot the deer with a, with a lead ammunition? But then when you shoot the deer for like, you know, 10, 20 years, all of a sudden you're talking about the lifetime exposure to lead. So, um, so what's this state of play at the moment in the United States? Is this one of the like active issues that you're working on? Or is it like kind of like a sleeping and just waiting for, you know, <laughs> it's prime time again? No, it's ongoing. I mean, Really, like the big inflection points that we've seen are taking place with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Every year before season starts, they come out with the hunt fish rule for, for the upcoming season. And that, you know, it, it, uh, in the past, like, so when I worked at Interior, a big piece of it was it was opening up a lot of access to new hunting opportunities, adding, you know, opportunities on new species and just more physical land, you know, and it was always kind of like a, like a big old Christmas tree of, of good stuff for hunters. But in the last couple of years, it's kind of changed to where it's like looking through it to see what it's going to shut down. And what we're seeing is it's going refuge by refuge in their management plans with, you know, doing phase outs like let will be phased out of this by 2025. Um, like I'd mentioned, you know, they were sued by Center for Biological Diversity asking for them to shut it down everywhere. That was tossed. It didn't happen. Um, so what we're really seeing is kind of like, little fires being set around it. And that's why, you know, in Congress, two of our SCI's legislators, past legislators of the year um, have introduced language that, that would address it, saying, you know, if Fish and Wildlife is going to come up with one of these rules, they need to provide actual science and then be able to, you know, have state, local authority, you know, sign off on it as well. Because what, we, like, what we've seen is like some of the refuges, they'll put it in there saying it needs to be closed down for purposes of health, and it'll even say within there that they don't have any science showing that it's ever affected anybody's health, you know, but maybe one day we will show you that science. It's like, And is SCA uh, talking to um, uh, ammunition manufacturers, saying like, where is our non-lead ammunition? We, we, want, we want them, and we want a lot and cheap of them. Like, are you doing like outreach to, to manufacturers to ensure that you know, at the same time, they're they're working on the alternatives. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's again like the market decides, um, and I know that that they are. I mean, we have 
good relationships with a lot of the manufacturers. Like again, like got to visit, you know, Federal's plant a couple of years ago and kind of see see how they do it. I know that they've come out with a lot of different bullets, you know, that have that have shown well in testing. Um yeah, I mean, we don't try to lobby manufacturers to change their their business practices. Yeah, maybe you should. Maybe you should. Listen, um, okay, uh, so before I let you go, we're going to be wrapping this up shortly. Um, I would like you to give uh, to all the hunters who are listening to this, give me a, like a advice, like a words of wisdom in terms of how to conduct yourself to ensure the future of hunting, you know, how to speak with people who are, might or might not be um, supportive of hunting, how to, you know, what to post and what not to post on social media, you know, how to like, what is the, you know, 10 or whatever, five points that you would like to, you know, uh, communicate to hunters uh, to ensure that we are, you know, in a good standing and we have like a good social license to hunt? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Great way to close it up. I would say, I live in a suburb of Washington, D.C. Uh, it's not, it, it, it's a city, right? I'm able to get out to, to go hunting pretty pretty easily, but the neighborhood I live in, I'm pretty much surrounded by mostly people that don't hunt. Um, and maybe that makes me like kind of a, a curiosity, um, but I've never really found myself, you know, in a position where I felt like I wasn't able to get across to folks, you know, why it matters to me. Maybe I just kind of wear it on my sleeve and wear it on my face with enthusiasm when I talk about it. But I think it does honestly go back to some of the, you know, I do it because it's fun. But I think it comes through, you know, kind of anecdotes about what you experienced. You know, it's like everything outside of even just the, the pulling of the trigger, you know, with a lot of the people, like when I can talk about like the hunt that I did, like I'll, I'll, I'll see my neighbors around a bonfire at night. And earlier that day, I'd gone out an hour and a half across the Bay Bridge, the Chesapeake to go hunt. I can come back and just explain like the sunrise I saw, the the sounds I heard, you know, the experience I had. And there's not one person out there that doesn't have you know something in them that makes them a bit jealous, you know. About you see emotional language that we talking about is like right there, real, right? I mean, and just being able, to, I think anytime I share those things, it at least makes interest. And uh, sometimes folks will say that they want to come out and, and, and see it too always take them up on that offer, right? Any sort of exposure to it and seeing what it actually is rather than what's in their head. And that's where one of the biggest disconnects is. I mean, a lot of the times having done it, you make all these assumptions about other people where they're even coming from. I mean, there's such a disconnect. Like some people might just think that it's like covering yourself in like really bright orange and screaming and running through the woods, right? Like they don't have any idea. Like, so I think a lot of it just goes back to explaining kind of what that common ground is. And sometimes when I couch it, it's just like, maybe they're going to come out of it a little jealous that they didn't really, you know, live the full day that was lived. Um, on on posting, I just, I think it's always down to just, you know, what what's tasteful. I mean, I think that what I, what I see a lot of are, are, are thoughtful captions that are, you know, assigned to it also you know, in a trophy photo, just something that else is, is, is just explaining, you know, what the full experience meant to you, what the aftermath of it all was. I think, again, it is just like the storytelling and not, you know, not letting it be seen for one thing, but trying to give it the full context, I think makes the world a difference. 
Ben, that was that's a smart words. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you you get it, you're doing a great job, uh, and you know hunters needs more people like you and more like attitudes and and connection between like a real deal hunting and then politics and kind of uh, try to you know do the best uh, for hunters. So thank you so much. Absolutely, Tommy. It's been a great pleasure. I'm glad it finally all came together, especially the day before deer season opens in Ireland. Yes, it opens, opens tomorrow. Uh, it's the uh, 31st of August. While we're recording this, I'm going hunting tomorrow. Good on you. Yeah, dove season opens for us. I don't know if that's controversial over there, but it's a big deal over here. So, <laughs> Excellent. See you next time. Thanks, Tommy. Looking forward. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 